This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. Um, I'm really... I'm really happy I'm having the conversation today that I am with an incredible uh, individual, Kirsty Ennis. Um, and I was just telling Kirsty before um, that I learned her story on Jocko's podcast. Um, as I was driving down to be a guest on Jocko's podcast, I was listening to your episode and I was blown away by your story, by your bravery, by your um authenticity to really open up and share your experience. And um, so I knew when I started The Resilient Life, uh, I knew I wanted you as one of my guests. So Kirsty, thank you for joining us here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, I'm honored. So I, I want to start out for those that are not familiar with your story. You joined the military at age 17, correct? I did, yes. <laughs> so for those that don't know, when you join the military at age 17, you, you have to get parental permission to do that because you are not <laughs> yet a legal adult. Um, but you joined as um, you joined as a mechanic, um, an aircraft mechanic. So walk us through, let's let's start with your desire to serve. Um, you know, I'm I'm the the daughter of a retired Marine Corps colonel. So um, I, I understand how that can kind of get imbued in your bloodstream, but I'd love to know that path for you at 17 when you, you made that decision to say, I want to join the military. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it already, but I'll start with my favorite story um, of all time. Uh, you know, my mom and my dad got married at 18 years old and shortly after my dad joined the Marine Corps. And when my when my parents were 27 years old and we were living on Marine Corps Base 20 uh, Marine Corps Base 29 Palms, um, I was four years old and my mom came home and told my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are really badass. And my dad looked at my mom and said, I'll never be married to a female Marine. Uh, to which point, my mom turned around, went out the door, went to the recruiter's office, uh, got an age waiver, and joined the Marine Corps. Um, so the apple really doesn't fall too far from the tree uh, in that regard, but. Really, I mean, my earliest memories are of my mom walking across the parade deck when she graduated um, in Paris Island, um, uh, you know, as a Marine. And then I used to come home every single day, get off the school bus and watch this documentary on Marine Corps boot camp. My Barbies wore dress blues and camis. And it was just something that like, I knew from a very, very early age that I was going to give my parents a reason to be proud of me like I was proud of them. And um, I actually finished my high school curriculum by the time that I was 15. Um, we were living in the panhandle of Florida, Pensacola. I'm sure all the Navy guys and gals are super familiar. Um, and I started uh, community college. And um, four months after my 17th birthday, um, so I, had, I was just about to finish my um, AA degree. I just remember sitting, or, sitting in my chemistry lab and looking around the room and thinking, like, 
this isn't enough. Like I'm not being challenged. Um, and I was getting pretty, um, just pretty complacent with things. And I went to the recruiter's office, walked out of my class and, and sat down and there was no convincing on their part. I sat down and said, Hey, I want to, I want a Rubbermaid box. Like my parents have, that's full of the awards, the uniforms, the whole nine. And, um, you know, he told me what I needed to do. I went home, uh, told my mom that I, that I wanted to join and I needed to leave, you know, now basically. And, she pretty much said good riddance because I was a handful and um, I ended up lying through my teeth to my dad to get um, to get him to sign. So my dad was artillery and then my mom was um, supply and I, I swore up and down that I would do do supply just like my mom. And um, sure enough, the day that my uh, my dad dropped me off for boot camp, my recruiter looks at him and says, hey, you know, I've never put a female in for, uh, you know, for what she's trying to do and, you know, the career path that she's trying to go down. So no, this is awesome. And when my dad found out what I was doing um, and where I would be going, uh, he was, he, needless to say, he didn't talk to me for 13 weeks of boot camp. But um, I, uh, I just remember just, I don't know, I wanted to do something for the greater good. I admired the hell out of my parents for getting up every single day and sacrificing and putting on the uniform. And um, I wanted to, you know, to follow in their footsteps. I love that. And I always think, you know, um, I talk about it a lot personally, like uh, I, I did not join the military. Um, I actually, for, for a long time, kind of shied away from that world. Uh, I didn't share with people that my dad was a Marine um, when, we, when he left active duty. So he did 11 years active duty, 19 years reserve. And um, I didn't share that side of my life um, because I felt disconnected. I didn't feel like anybody even understood what that meant, right? And so... Um, I just find it so interesting. Now on the flip side, my brother very much embraced the, the Marine Corps culture. And um, he was, he was very much like you, you know, he was um, wearing my dad's, uh, you know, camis um, while we were down in North Carolina. There's so many pictures. Now at a young age, I was, when I was very young, I was very much into it. But when I got into high school, um, you know, I wanted my dad to just be you know, a businessman, like all the other businessman men that my friend's parents were. And, um, and it really was when my brother went to the Naval Academy and I saw him and he went into the Marine Corps that I kind of came full circle. And I'm like, this is something to be proud of and, and to understand and have pride in the, the choices and the decisions that not just my dad made for joining the Marine Corps in 1978, but um, my mom who was the um, epitome of a Marine Corps spouse, a military spouse who, you know, moved every two years with him, whose number one job was taking care of the family. And um, looking back, who was the person that made sure that our family unit was strong. Um, and, and I always um, want to give credit to the incredible military spouses uh, that are just an as an important part of our military community as uh, those who are serving. Um, and then watching my brother and, um, you know, what he went on to do. You deployed for the first time when? So you, you go through boot camp at 17, you're there for 13 weeks. And then wh what, does, what does the next step look like for you? Because this is, well, let's go back. What year is this? This is like 2011, 2012? Yep. Okay. Yep. So obviously, you and you know when you're joining, I mean, you're, you're at the height of what's happening um, in our country. You, you, you certainly knew if you were joining the Marines, you were deploying. So, um, 
So let's talk about what that next phase comes after boot camp. Yeah, well, so, I mean, just like every other Marine, um, you know, you go through boot camp, you go through, um, whether it's SOI or your Marine combat training, you go on to your, your, your military occupational specialty schools, and I had two of them being in the air wing. And when I first hit uh, the fleet, I was actually assigned to Heavy Marine Helicopter Squadron 465, and all I wanted to do was deploy. And at that time, um, we were basically doing a joint deployment with a West Coast unit and an East Coast unit. So half of my unit was actually one was half of us was going to go on a MU and then the other half was going to go to Afghanistan. And I fought tooth and nail to go to Afghanistan. The last thing I wanted to do was go sit on a ship. And um, lo and behold, I got my I got my way. And when I got out there, I I fell in love with it. Um, it's gonna this is gonna sound quite bizarre, but just the simplicity of it. You know, there was no question of what you're going to wear, you know, what your hair is going to look like, what you're going to eat. You have one job, you know, it will do your job well, but then most importantly, like take care of your guys and come home safe. Take care of the guys, the people that have, um, you know, boots on the ground, you know, as the air wing, like our main focus is to support those men and women um, that are going around kicking down doors. And I felt just this overwhelming sense of pride. And I, I knew for a fact that that's where, um, where my heart was going to be, you know, for the duration of my, my military career. And um, yeah, I was so wrapped up in it and just so enthralled by all of it that even when I came home, so that, that deployment was January, 2011 to August, 2011. And when I came home, I mean, I, I was so disconnected with what life was really going to be like when I came home. Um, and I was just so obsessed with, with deploying again, that I actually ended up doing an deployment uh, four months later uh, as a volunteer, just volunteer effort and wanted to go back. So you, you spend your first deployment in Afghanistan and then four months later, you're back there again. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I understand that, that um, I understand it from watching it, you know, again, Travis uh, did a deployment and then six months later, less than six months later, he was back in Iraq for his second deployment. And you know, you, you, as a family member, and I'm sure your, your parents did it, you wait with bated breath for them to come back. And then, you know, it's, it's very fleeting that moment they're back, you're happy. And then it's like, well, wait, I'm going back again. And, um, and so I, I, I understand it from that side of things, but I also understand this desire, you know, when Travis um, went on his first deployment, he was a logistics officer. And um, I remember him calling and having very different conversations with my dad, it was, I, you know, I need to be more in the fight. Like I'm, I'm, I, I need to be out there. I'm, you know, behind the wire. And for me and my mom, I was like thrilled about what his position was at that time. And, <laughs> you know, he came back and he talked about, he played a pretty significant role in the election. Um, and so I think he felt a sense of pride with that, but he's watching all of his friends who are, you know, playing different roles in infantry. And so he came back and he joined first recon. Um, and he, you know, was like, okay, I'm going to be a logistics officer. I'm going to be with first recon battalion. And, um, and then found out that he was going to be attached to a, a mid team. Um, so he was going to be actively training the Iraqi army and, um, I've shared this before, but leading into that deployment, we knew that it was going to be different. Um, and, and even kind of the hush conversations he was having with my dad and, you know, it, it was going to be a different deployment and we realized that right away. But, um, you know, I, I can 
I understand that desire. You've worked so hard. You want to be with your brothers and sisters out there. You want to be contributing to, to what's happening. And so you head back for that second deployment and, and you find yourself on June 23rd, 2012. And I'd love to just, um, I'd love to just kind of walk through, you were participating in what you've called a routine mission when you were involved in a helicopter crash. You, should, you sustained an injury to your leg that led to amputation, a traumatic brain injury, bilateral shoulder damage, full thickness facial trauma, trauma, cervical and lumbar spine trauma. And shortly after getting your leg amputated below the knee, you contact, contracted MRSA in the hospital and had to amputate above the knee. Um, and for those that don't know, there's a very significant difference between a below knee amputation and an above knee. Um, let's, let's walk through that day. Um, you know, I, I, again, heard you share the story of that day with Jocko and I, I was blown away and, and I'd love for people to understand, you know, what that looks like. Um, you're on a routine mission. So you're on the plane, you're on the helicopter. Where are you going? Let's start there. Where are you headed? Right. Well, well so well, for, first and foremost, I mean, I, I also want to bring to light um, the fact that my first and second deployments were, were night and day as well. You know, um, you know that second deployment, I was um, very fortunate to be able to pick up my uh, my air crew wings and obviously my combat action wings. And, um, you know, when I got out there in 2012, um, you know, the things that I were doing again, that I was doing were totally different than on my first deployment and um again it was one of those things where i just became obsessed with flying you know i got i became obsessed with doing combat resupply missions with doing insertions and extractions uh you know doing dread grades doing uh, prisoner transfer all of that stuff like so it was um a very um big transition going into something that was you know high speed low drag compared to you know what i was originally doing and um, on June 23rd, 2012, um, I was just actually like six weeks away from coming home. Um, I was supposed to be going outbound on a, on a night mission and it was, it should have been again, like you said, trailer routine. I was going to go out to a uh, forward operating base, Nauzad, um, go on to Musa do an extraction of Marines. Um, and then really just, just get back home, just a bunch of combat resupply stuff, um, and, and bring in some Marines home safe and sound. Um, Again, you know, I, I should have been, normally we flew at night and when I got my flight plan, you know, good to go, I was going back to my shop and then within a couple of hours, I, I you know, get this, this message that there's been a change of plans. Um, and I, it was just strange because we, we normally would never go outbound to do the things that we were doing in broad daylight. We would never be turning up our aircraft to do these things, um, you know, at, at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And, and so and it was like this overwhelming that? sense of just, uh, just so that the enemy can't spot us and track us. Uh, you know, obviously, if there's a critical mission, like we would go outbound during the day. But because this was something that's fairly routine, we're safer, you know, flying at night. Um, and so it was, you know, it was just strange. And um, I, originally, you know, my aircraft was aircraft zero one. You know, it's the one that had my name painted on the side. It's the one that I flew on day in, day out. Um, and I, you know, I was running out to the flight line with my flight gear to aircraft zero one and my maintenance officer, officer snatched me up and said, uh, you know, there's been a change of plans. You're going to go outbound on this um, aircraft that was actually painted as a memorial aircraft um, for six Marines that we lost. And it was ironically aircraft zero six. And 
that that helicopter hadn't flown in, in ages and we know we needed to turn it up we needed to put flight hours on it to keep it up and active and um, again just a strange um, sequence of events but you know you do what you're told and uh, normally I was the lead aircraft um, you know we fly in sections uh, most of the time at least two aircraft at a time and most of the time I was lead aircraft this time around I was actually the uh, the trailing aircraft the second aircraft and there were just a bunch of things where it was just um, I don't want to say misaligned or misconnected but there was just something was off um, about this day but I mean nonetheless you know we went out to the fuel pits we tested our weapons we um, you know picked up three space available army medics and you know started going back and forth between um, Camp Bastion into some other forward operating bases to drop off supplies and when we were in route to uh, forward operating base now Zad uh, I mean everything was just going according to plan and um, before I knew it um, you know I felt the nose of the aircraft uh, start to angle down a little bit and it was a you know it was a brownout situation the pilots couldn't see anything we um, there's a lot of distractions a lot of chaos come in uh, from the ground, we were being spotlighted, which is basically where um, um, the enemy on the ground blooms out our aircraft to to signal to you know the next um, you know, location that the enemy's at is hey this is where they're at and this is how they're coming this is the flight path that they're on, which isn't necessarily a big deal. I mean it happens all the time, but it wasn't something. Um, again, it was just it was a strange evening, and the nosy aircraft started going down, and then the nosy aircraft started coming up uh, real abruptly and. Um, basically crashes a minute and I was in the left door gun uh, that that night at this point we were, we were going, going into darkness um, and with my night vision goggles down like I was just staring at the ground um, and instead of like freaking out or um, you know praying or panicking I was just accounted sounds silly but I counted in my head as if we were there, the aircraft were landing normally you know five four three two one mains on deck and of course like in my head when it said mains on deck you know my my weapon, the barrel of my weapon, my 50 cal is going into the dirt, you know, coming back up and through my face, knocking me out. I'm laying in the dirt, half my body is, you know, wedged between um, the tri-walls of the aircraft and the seats. Um, I, and I just went in and out of consciousness. And um, when I heard one of my pilots scream uh, for my tail gunner, who really was like my military hero at the time, um, they couldn't find him. He was actually, um, he, went out the back um, before we even hit the ground. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I have no idea what, what was going through anybody's head at that point and, and how that really happened. But when they couldn't find him and they couldn't wake him up, I just remember waking up and I just started to scream because I wanted, I just wanted to find him. And then when I did that, I started to choke and I rolled my tongue around my, uh, around my mouth and I it was just shattered jaw and broken teeth. And I had no idea that I had this fist size hole in my face. And, um, you know, like I said, lost my jaw the whole nine. And I just remember thinking that, you know, A, I wasn't going to die without finding out where my, where my tail gutter was. And then I wasn't going to die without saying bye to my little sister. And like from that moment on, everything just kept going in and out. And actually one of the combat um, medics, the army medics that we had picked up, that was basically getting a taxi ride from us to one of the other operating bases he got in front of me um, and kept me out of shock. And I remember trying to pull myself up, like to stand up um, with him. And that's when my arms ripped from the sockets. That's when like, I realized that my leg was collapsing underneath me. And um, again, just went in and out and they ended up loading me um, and, and my tail gunner, thank God they, that they found him. Um, they loaded me and my tail gunner into the lead aircraft that um, we were flying with that night. And 
I just remember laying on the floor of this aircraft and the new, the, the, um, the other door gunner of the aircraft that we were on, he bent down next to me and he said, don't close your fucking eyes because you won't open them again. And that's just for the next like 30 minutes, I just laid, laid on the ground um, next to my tail gunner and got covered in warm hydraulic fluid, unfortunately. And, and just told myself that, you know, A, I was going to go back to flying, you know, that they were going to sew me up and things were going to be fine. Um, but like I said, I wasn't going to die without, without saying bye to my sister. And then everything went black. And the next thing I remember is waking up in this little makeshift hospital on Bastion. And um, I remember seeing my sergeant major and my gunnery sergeant standing there just staring at me and crying. And um, my gunny at the time, he was, I mean, he really was a father figure to me. And he's actually the one that asked me invited me <laughs> um to to go on that deployment and um that like that's the moment that I knew that everything was over you know that I was going home and that I wasn't going to finish out that deployment with my guys that I wasn't going um I don't know to, you know to continue flying and um yeah I, I was devastated because I had just been a like it's very very rare for a woman to have combat action wings with three gold stars um to have an air valor medal or any of that um let alone to be, you know, combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant. So I, uh, I was, you know, I finally, I, I felt like I had hit my stride in Afghanistan. I was ready to finish it out. And then uh, before I knew it, I was on a plane to Kandahar and then to Germany and DC and uh, finally to Naval Medical Center, San Diego, where I did the rest of my recovery. Wow. There's some, there's some things I want to, unpack here first going back to getting ready to get on that flight and you kind of said it was supposed to be routine it was routine but there were some changes did you think about that after the fact like as you know as you were lying there any of like almost like you had this feeling that something was different did you I mean did you ever have that feeling um, a hundred percent. Well, and there, and there's two sides of that, I guess. So for a little while there, it, it was just, I was bitter and I was angry, um, specifically at my leadership for making those changes. Like why couldn't that aircraft go out, you know, on, on a training flight, you know, why couldn't that like go out on a gun run just really quick and test, test weapons? You know, why wasn't I on, my aircraft in the position that, that I was normally in. Oh, and to, and to specify, to clarify a little bit further, the aircraft that I was loaded into was my aircraft. So zero one, my aircraft with my name on the side in the lead position where I should have been. The one that took you um, Yeah, exactly. And so it was just like, there's so much just, I don't want to call it irony, but there are just so many like little <laughs> omens or signs. Um, but so for a little while there, I was like, well, why wasn't I just on my aircraft? Why wasn't I in the position that I'm normally always in? Why did we, you know, change the flight plan? Um, I mean, I thank God that we ended up picking up those, um, you know, the army medics, you know, they're the ones that kept me out of shock and kept me and my guys alive. Um, and so, yeah, there, it was just like this, this roller coaster of emotions for a little while there. But then also, you know, I kind of counted my blessings that I was on Aircraft 06 because, um, you know, my call sign that night uh, was actually Legacy 07. And the call sign of the six gentlemen uh, that we lost at the beginning of that deployment, um, their call sign was actually Iron Tail 06. And there is no doubt in my mind that, like, I should have, I should not have lived. If you, if you saw the photos of, of, of 
specifically my head trauma, I, I should not have come out of it the way that I did. Um, and so there's no doubt in my mind that the, the boys of Iron Tail 06 were watching over us and that aircraft that night and said, you know, it's not happening today. So, um, you know, in hindsight, there was some anger, but then there was also, you know, um, uh, I don't know, my, I guess the best word is gratitude. I think I'm now what was the, it, it was given to me. Yeah. No, the, the ultimate issue was mechanical fail, failure within the, the helicopter. No. Um, unfortunately, um, the easiest way to explain it without, uh, going too far into it is pilot error. I mean, it was human error. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I, I, I uh, my heart goes out to, um, the pilot specifically, that was the, um, that was manning my aircraft that night because he actually DOR'd. He dropped on request right off the bat, um, never flew again, got out of the Marine Corps. And um, I know that there was an overwhelming sense of guilt for him um, and obviously responsibility, uh, but I will give him a little bit of uh, benefit, like benefit of the doubt. I mean, there was a lot going on. There was, I mean, there was commotion taking place, but unfortunately, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, my pilot choked. So you, you talk about if you had seen the pictures, um, I shouldn't have lived. Um, after I listened to your story the first time, I Googled you and I saw the pictures. And, I, you know, I mean, they're traumatizing for, to, to look at. And um, thank God for that army medic that told you not to shut your eyes because, <laughs> I mean, there's no way you're not going into shock. Even if you can't physically see what you look like, you can feel it, right? Like you, you, mm -hmm. you feel that, that there's a hole in the side of your face. And, um, and so, you know, I think about what that means as, and, and I don't want this to come off in the wrong way, but I've thought about it a lot when I first listened to your story as a woman, right. And, and this idea that, um, obviously you're, you, you know, you're going home. Um, and, um, but how quickly does it come into your mind? Like, what, what am I going to look like now? What is this going to, you know, what, what does this mean for me, um, physically? And, and I'd love to know the process of how it goes. Like, okay, Marine Corps is done. You know, what is, what is a thought process? I guess I will start there. What's the thought process that goes through your head? Um, as you know, and again, for those that don't know, um, when you leave Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, when you're injured, uh, most of the time you're headed towards Germany, right. And you start there and then, you know, um, if you're lucky, you make it back to the States. Um, but kind of talk us through that evolution because there's obviously the physical, um, injuries that you're most certainly dealing with, but I would think that very quickly, uh, the, the, the mental anguish and injury, uh, kicks in as well too. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I think, I mean, that, that's kind of the crazy part too, is like, especially, and this and not mean to be, you know, offensive to anybody, but especially like the civilian sector, you know, they look at me and they're like, holy shit, this chick is missing the majority of her leg. Like, you know, that must be God awful, but they don't see, you know, the scars that cover my body or, you know, how I try to hide the, the scars on my face and the whole nine, like they don't recognize that, um, you know, the invisible injuries are far more debilitating than anything that I've had to overcome physically, hands down. Uh, I don't get me wrong. Like there's tons of challenges with being an amputee, you know, it's being like a toddler all over again. You literally have to relearn absolutely everything 
But if you're suffering mentally and emotionally, you're not going to be able to do those things or relearn those things physically, period. Um, so like first and foremost, you know, when they wheel me into this hospital and I see, um, you know, my, my gunny and my sergeant major, like, I don't give a shit about my leg. You know, again, in my mind at this point in time, like they're just going to sew me back up and I'm just going to get to hang out with my buddies and they're going to go home. Uh, and, you know, we're going to ride this deployment out. But when they're crying and they're looking at me, like that was the first blow because now I'm leaving behind my guys. Um, I'm leaving behind my entire identity and entire purpose at this point. Like not only, you know, am I not going to be able, you know, you know, to be in the fight, you know, so to speak, but, but now I'm going to go home to the total unknown. You know, I don't have a unit anymore. I I'm clearly going back to a hospital. And um, so like right off the bat, you know, I have all of these emotions. Well then, uh, you know, a couple of the surgeons come up to me and they say, we're not even going to touch your leg. Like, we have no idea how to even approach this situation. We're going to leave it Afghanistan while this you're still in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and then, you know, the corpsmen are coming over to me again in Afghanistan. They're looking at my face and I'm like, holy shit, these guys better not touch my face. First of all, because my, you know, my chin's going to be up by my eyeball if that's the case. And <laughs> I got very, very lucky. They're not uh, looking for this, precision uh, with the sutures on your face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're just I'm looking like, at oh, close no. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, then there's um, this sweet little British plastic surgeon was actually out there and she looked at everybody and was like, no one touch her face. You guys can close up the other rooms. You can, you know, work on everything else. But I, this is my patient when it, you know, when it's all said and done. And, and thank God it was her that, that got a hold of my face. And once they like closed the open wound, <laughs> um yeah they loaded me up and sent me to Kandahar and and when I got to Kandahar it was um I mean it was it was fairly brief you know but I just remember like looking around and and I mean there was no one like me there I mean there's no women there you know there's and not that that necessarily matters in the moment but there's no women there um no one's talking to me everyone's just kind of staring at me and the next thing you know they're and I'm on a stretcher of course you know I'm cinched down load me up they put me on a plane to Germany and um, I ended up being in Germany for a little bit um, just so that they could actually stabilize me um, for the long flight from Germany up to DC. And uh, my lungs kept sticking together. Um, I, I was just having all sorts of random issues. And that was actually uh, one of the first times that I got to call home. Well, my command, who again, I uh, well, won't say too much about him, but you know, my command, when they, when they called home to my parents, um, they say, hey, you know, your daughter's coming home. She has a cut on her chin. And, and her legs messed up, but they don't say that, you know, she's losing her leg or anything. Uh, they don't say that I don't have a jaw or, or any of this. And um, so I get to talk to my mom on the phone and she starts laughing. She's like, baby girl, I can't understand you. You must be on a lot of meds and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm pissed. Like, you mom. And I hang up the phone and then I, I, I don't talk to my parents until I get stateside. Cause I'm like, I am that mad. Like, you know, I'm in pain and I'm struggling and no one's, you know, like, no one's there for me. Like that's what's going through my head. And then from Afghanistan, like, do you have any sort of um, buddy or someone that's at, that goes with you through this process? So you're just with brand new people in Germany. Not that they're not part of the military, but like you have nobody familiar with you in Germany. Nobody. Okay. Mm -mm. Nope. And then, so finally I'm stable enough to move from Germany to DC and that, I think that was the moment that I realized that, um, that, that my life was going to be really, really challenging um, moving that moment forward because they loaded me on the, um, on the C-17 and uh, 
there's just racks of bodies. You know, whether they people like the I was on the top rack because I'm the lightest. There's two dudes below me, and I look over the the gentleman that was across from me. He's missing three limbs. There's two gentlemen underneath him, and there's just rows of of, of people stacked on top of each other. And then alongside these cots, these stretchers, uh, you know, there's 30, 40 people on each side, and they're all just staring at us. You know, they're able bodied. There's nothing wrong with them. They're going home. They are just on the first flight out kind of thing. And um, everyone's just staring at me. And so I start to panic because, you know, again, the only woman, I have no idea what I look like anymore. I can't walk. I can't move. I can't do anything. I can't function. And so, I mean, they ended up having to um, seriously sedate me um, to be able to get me finally to DC because I'm like, get me the fuck off this plane. The last thing, the last thing I want to do is be in the air after a helicopter crash that nearly took my life. And, um, you know, when I got to DC, they ended up declaring me a polytrauma and saying that, you know, the best um, medical care that I could get would be in San Diego to address everything. And, um, you know, once I made it to San Diego, that's when they finally decided that, um, you know, they were going to try and do something about my leg and they were trying to, you know, do something about my spine. And I ended up enduring 46 surgeries. And, um, you know, when it, when it came down to it, like, I didn't really have an issue with, with the surgeries, I guess, you know, when they told me what I was going to face, like every other week, it was something, you know, reconstructing my face, the stuff with my arms, the stuff with my ears, the stuff with my, like, I was totally fine with it. But like, what bothered me the most is, you know, who's going to look at me differently? Am I going to be attractive enough to have a family? Who Will anybody find me attractive enough at all? And it wasn't even really about like the prosthetic. It was like looking down and realizing that, you know, the, there's nothing there. Or, you know, looking in the mirror, that daily reminder of, of these scars on my face. And um, it, it was really hard for me to be able to wrap my head around that, which sounds very, very like petty, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Cause now it's like, oh, well, I, I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to stay in the Marine Corps at this point. You know, I, I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to walk or, or run. And all I'm worried about is, you know, is who who's looking at me differently. And, um, you know, like, I struggled and, um, you know, on one hand I had this command come in, actually it was the, the, the commanding general of um, MCRD San Diego and he comes in and, and I had my heart set up for whatever sick reason, I had my heart set on being a drill instructor and this gentleman came in and he said, you know, you're going to be the first drill instructor with one leg, you're going to be the first drill instructor with one leg. All right, cool. And I, and I rode that way for a long time. I fought for two years to stay in. Yeah. And um, so when lo and behold, after that, you know, that third um, finding of, you know, unfit for duty, that I can't stay in because of the damage that was done, you know, to my neck and up. That's when um, I really suffered, you know, I, I got better, you know, again, physically, I, I, I overcame everything that was thrown at me. But then when they told me that that purpose was really gone, that I was being forced into medical retirement, that it wasn't going to happen for me anymore. That's when I crumbled. So again, like, the side of being a woman and, um, you know, having the potential of, um, you know, again, whether it's being a wife or being a spouse or, you know, being a mom, whatever that was at the time, um, then rolling into what the fuck am I going to do? You know, I, I, I gave six years to my country starting at 17 years old. That's all that I knew. Uh, don't get me wrong. You know, I had a master's degree at that point in time and whatnot, but everything that I loved and cared about my, again, my identity, I, I felt like I was robbed, you know, robbed of, years of my life, robbed of my career, robbed of my memory, my leg, the whole nine. Um, 
So when we're talking about just like the recovery and the injuries themselves, losing a leg was nothing um, in comparison to, to the trauma that people suffer internally. Well, and when you look at it, the, the leg your, your, was actually not what prohibited you from staying in the Marine Corps. And so that's the first thing you see when you look at a picture of you, it's she's missing her leg, right? But it was everything yeah. else that was actually what was, what had you medically retire from, from the Marine Corps. Um, yeah. And, and, and you have to process with what, you know, and I, I went through that when, when Travis was killed, it was like, what does my life look like now? You know, where, what do I do from here? Um, everything I did prior to Travis dying, it felt empty. Um, and so it was a little bit different. Like I felt like I had to find something that brought me higher purpose because everything I thought I, I was a, I was a, you know, um, a mom, a newly married mom with that ran a clothing store. And I was perfectly happy with that. And then after Travis died, it felt so empty to me. And I remember folding a pair of designer jeans that I had waited probably a year and actually had talked to Travis about uh, while on deployment that I had gotten, I had scored this big brand in my store. And those jeans showed up about a month after he was killed and I'm folding the jeans and it was this total feeling of, I can't do this anymore. And within, you know, two months from there, I had closed my business down because I, I knew that like everything had changed. Right. And so you had to redefine your purpose and what that means and, and, and what you do and, and what you represent as a, a female, um, a female to the, the military community, because there's still a lot on your shoulders too. You have to think about it. Like you, you're not, lo you're no longer in the Marine Corps, but you still have to represent, right? Like in some ways, did you feel like they were counting on you not to fall apart? Did you feel abandoned? Like what, what, how was the feeling when you medically retired, you know, and, and your connection to the Marine Corps at large? Well, um, well, first, first, I want to get, I want, uh, I want to commend you for bringing something up, and and it's something that's never, no one, you know, on the dozens of podcasts that I've done now at this point, no one's ever brought it up, uh, or at least made me think about it. You know, earlier, earlier, you had mentioned something about uh, the differences between you and your brother, and you know, I have a little sister that's uh, seven years younger than me, and we couldn't be any more different. Um, she. You know, every anytime anybody would ask her if she was going to join the Marine Corps, she'd get mad. Like, absolutely not. Like, I want nothing to do with it. Um, and, and just, you know, that that desire to serve for her wasn't there. So when you when you were talking about that earlier, that reminded me of her. And um, and even just now, you know, some of the stories that um, were shared with me from my family after I got hurt. Uh, I mean, I mean, they, they continue to shape my life every single day. You know, my little sister. Um, you know when I got hurt, she was 14 and made some very, very huge, um, 13 really, um, sacrifices to be able to sit by my side because my parents couldn't afford to sit with me in the hospital. And, um, you know, she made some very, very adult decisions, but, um, when I was really suffering and struggling again, mentally and emotionally, she, she needed to get help of her own because she was saying that, you know, I don't see a point in living if my, my sister is not living and she's not living to the ability that she could be. Um, and so to hear you say some of the things that just it, it brought up a lot of 
just a lot of emotions. And um, I mean, I guess which is a which, which is a nice little uh, piggyback into the rest of it. Um, you know, because when I hear those things, of course, no one's telling me that right off the bat. You know, that there are people looking to me, um, like my little sister or my family members. Um, but when I did find that out, you know, that was just um, you know another reason not to throw in the towel because I did. I suffered with a lot of demons and for a long time, I, I did not talk about them, um, even though I, I probably really should have and needed to. Um, but when it came down to it, um, after I did try to take my life, um, a year after uh, my helicopter went down to the day, a year after my helicopter went down, you know, my dad came to me and he said, you know, you gotta be shitting me. You know, the enemy couldn't kill you and now you're gonna do it for them. And that's probably the first time that I really felt that I don't want to say pressure or responsibility, but that I, that I really had to get it together for myself because there were people watching, whether it's family members of, of the men and women who never made it home, um, you know, whether it's, you know, my peers, my fellow brothers and sisters, whether it's people that I've never even met here in the hospital dealing with the same things that I was, you know, that I've dealt with, whether it's, you know, civilian or military, um, you know, when it's all said and done, even if I'm not wearing the uniform, um, you know, I, I still had a lot to uphold because there were still a lot of people looking to me. Um, and, and I'm glad I had that realization because that's what, I mean, every single day, that's the reason I keep doing what I'm doing. So you, 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 you said it pretty quickly and I kind of want to, I, I want to bring it back. So everybody heard it correctly on the one year anniversary um, of what uh, people who are injured in wartime affectionately call their alive day, right? Um, and it, and right. Um, it becomes a day to celebrate. Like you're here, you made it. It's another year that that you made it, right? And um, I have a lot of friends I congratulate on their alive day and say, "Glad you're still with us. Keep keep up, keep up the good work," you know. But on your first year alive day, you tried to take your life. I mean, mm-hmm. and so just to think about this idea that for that year with everything you were going through physically your mental state took such a hit that you wanted out and i think uh i have a lot of things that that my marine corps father has said to me that have snapped me out and i loved that when i read that your dad said you know the enemy couldn't get you and now you're going to, you know, do it to yourself. I mean, uh, and, and sometimes that's all it takes is that one line, that one moment where someone says something and it just, it changes things. And it's like, okay. Um, and, and it's not that easy, right? It's not like, oh, he said that to me and I was fine. And, you know, but Sometimes it just takes that one moment to, to have that wake up call, that slap in the face um, to kind of bring yourself out and say, okay, wh- what comes next? And so, you know, you've been an incredible advocate now to the military community, um, an incredible representative. And I hope that today uh, you are proud of how you represent the Marine Corps um, as uh, an amputee, as a female, and um, as someone who talks so openly uh, about their story. Um, what does it look like for you today? Where are you today in terms of, in terms of all of that? Yeah, well, 
so I mean, I you know for a little bit there when we were talking, it was pretty grim, you know. Um, you know, for it took me a long time to even get to the point of celebrating my live day. Um, you know, for years it was very dark and you know, it was one of those things where my mom would, you know, beg me not to even drink a beer and to wrap myself in, in bubble wrap kind of thing. Um, and, and I mean, I'd say within, I'd say over the last like five years, I've come to grow very, very appreciative of what happened to me. Um, because I could still be, I could be pissed off. I could be read like forged with anger uh, about what happened to me. Because again, of, of all of the loss and everything that I've suffered and, and endured, um, but without those things, I wouldn't be where I am now. Um, the reality is it's probably the biggest blessing that's ever been you know, thrown my way because of my, just my new perspective on life and the way that um, you know, I have this very unique platform to be able to, um, you know, to give back and to serve others and to support people um, in ways that I never even dreamed of. You know, I, I was devastated when I was forced into that medical retirement because I felt like I wasn't going to be able to serve people anymore. But now I'm serving people, um, you know, I don't want to say in ways far greater, but in, in much different and much bigger ways than I, than I was before. Um, so again, uh, you know, thanks to those injuries and, and the damage to my leg, this Florida girl ended up, you know, competing alongside Team USA and snowboarding, you know, board across and bank solemn. I was fifth in the world. Um, uh, the USASA national champion in snowboarding of all things <laughs> with this damage to my leg, um, never, having never been on a snowboard before. I've gone forth and I, I climbed the tallest mountains in the world. I have earned three masters and a doctorate with the brain injury, even though doctors told me, you know, absolutely not, like you'll never be able to do it. Um, I own small businesses. I run my own nonprofit now. And, um, you know, had, again, these really awful, terrible things not happened to me, I would not be on the trajectory that I am, you know, right now. So again, I, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing now. So <laughs> at the end of the day, I, uh, I'm grateful. I think they call that post-traumatic growth, right? And that's one of my favorite terms because the, for the longest time, um, that's all that anybody talked about was, you know, PTSD, PTSD, post, you know, uh, post-traumatic like you know, stress, the symptoms that were related to it, but, you know, no one ever talked about, you know, what could come of it. So I, I, I love that phrase. Yeah. Well, you are an incredible example of what post-traumatic growth is. Um, I want to shift here because it, it, I could not have this conversation with you um, without talking to you about where we are today. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, just two days ago, our president announced that the war uh, in Afghanistan is over. Um, he said that. Uh, many people don't share that sentiment with him. Um, but I'd love to know where you are because this has to drum up a lot of things for you. Um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm personally connected to what's happening because I've lost a lot of friends in Afghanistan. I have a lot of friends that were severely injured in Afghanistan and, um, and I have friends that were SIVs, um, some that made it uh, on a plane um, and um, some that are still sitting in Afghanistan. And so I know the range of emotions that I have gone through um, over the past couple of weeks. And I'd love to hear your perspective on, on how you're feeling about everything. Yeah. Um, 
So when I first heard the initial news um, of what was taking place in Afghanistan, um, well, specifically um, uh, the Taliban, I mean, taking over all of Afghanistan, you know, when, when they went into Kabul and um, like, I, I just, I was glued to the TV, which is probably a terrible thing to do at the time. You know, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, and I, God, I was so addicted to social media and watching all, just reading all the news and everything. Um, that first day I, I was, I was really numb. Um, and then it hit me it, like uh, this world of emotions, um, you know, and it, it, I was angry on one hand. Um, I was embarrassed for our country because the rest of the world is watching, uh, you know, this country that is the world leader. Um, you know, I, my heart broke for all of the men and women who have sacrificed, who never made it home to their families. Um, the people, the, the innocent people that are still there, like you said, the, the SIVs, the people who are loyal to us, the people who are going to continue living in fear, the, the whole nine. Um, and so for days, I, I was in a really, really bad spot. And then, you know, things, uh, you know, started to level off. And, you know, I, I really started to try to focus on, you know, controlling what I could control. And then, of course, um, the attacks at the gates that took uh, 13 lives and wounded dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of our people. And then, of course, the innocent Afghans. And I, uh, I hit that downward spiral again, um, just because it was you know, I never felt like it was for nothing by any means. I don't feel like anybody, you know, died in vain. I don't feel like anybody, um, you know, sacrificed in vain or any of that. Um, it was just, it hurt me because it was done incorrectly. And um, like I said, you know, you we gave a lot of hope to a lot of people. Um, we did a lot of, of really, really amazing things um, for the people of Afghanistan. And to me, like, the thing that sat so heavy on my heart was, you know, there are kids who grew up knowing um, what independence was and, and what a little bit of freedom was, who are now going to um, live in hell, for wow. lack of better terms, moving forward. We gave people who are truly oppressed hope. We gave them independence again. We gave them freedom. We gave them the ability to learn, to drive vehicles, to go out and get, like, you know, earn careers, um, to provide for their families and to live without fear. And now they're going right back into it. Um, and, and I think that's the part that, uh, that hurts the most is I, I really wish that we would have, um, followed through with taking care of the innocent people. And, uh, most importantly, taking care of, um, obviously our U S military, our U S citizens, but, um, you know, our allies. I mean, there's a lot of people over there that has, that sacrificed alongside us, that were loyal to us, that that helped us for the last 20 years, and uh, and we left them. And I think that's the uh, the hardest part of all of it, because um, I know um, I know post 9/11 vets. Like it, it's been it's been hard because you, you, it's inevitable to, to question. You know you know, why, why did our buddies, why did we lose our buddies? Why, why, why did we sacrifice years of our lives and multiple deployments? Um, but I think when it's all said and done, like, I mean, it was worth it um, because of, of being able to liberate those people for the time being. Um, and so now I think it's just being able to 
to justify the actions and the poor planning of, of the government, which I don't think any of us should be surprised by the poor planning of the government, but um, yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with all of it now. Well, I think you hit on something and I share every sentiment that you just spoke, just so you know, but um, one of the things that I, I actually was talking to a friend of mine who's a Marine um, Colonel, still active duty, um, serving overseas right now. And, you know, we were having this conversation around this idea. And, and if I see one more person, right, you know, we should have been out of Afghanistan 10 years ago or uh, what a waste of lives. I mean, and, and I love, I've, I've, see, I've had some gold star sisters and spouses um, who have been very silent for very long, um, you know, really hitting back at people that are kind of putting this rhetoric out there when they have no comprehension or understanding of number one, just how deeply hurtful it is to, to make comments like that. But number two, who has no understanding of, of what was happening over there. And one of the things that I thought was so poignant about what my friend said is um, he, he shared with me, you know, all these people saying, you know, uh, it was for nothing, right? The last 20 years for nothing. He's like, well, you know, I did five combat deploy deployments in Afghanistan. And every single one of my Marines that was on that deployment with me saw the fruits of what we were doing over there. Every single one of them saw the, the, the smiles on the children's faces, saw how we were enabling them to live in a relatively free society. And, and again, it's over, right? Like, that's gone. We've, we've now um, catered to uh, a group that is, you know, a not designated terrorist organization, but let's, let's be honest, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be uh, killing our allies in the streets. And, and we know that. And, um, and we can turn a blind eye. And, and one of the things that's so interesting, because we were supposed to talk last week, and, and it was just it was too hard to have this conversation, right? And so having this conversation today when it's like, I, I, I heard the president speak and say, uh, you know, I've ended the war in Afghanistan. And, and, and on some levels, you know, you see people again that don't really have a comprehension of what the last 20 years signified, almost celebrating like, thank God, finally somebody got, got rid of this war. But the other thing that I noticed that was just a, a sign of our society is that that speech was given and the next day it was no more 24 hour news cycle on Afghanistan. And now this is where the really terrible things are going to start to happen. And we're just not paying attention, just like our society largely did not pay attention for the last 20 years. And they want to come back around, you know, at right, right now and say, Oh, thank God it's done. Like, thank God it's done. You have no idea. And the other thing that, that my friend said, he said, I did five combat deployments. I was gone for years and years from my family. And he said, and if I have to listen to people say, Oh, our society's war weary, we have to get out. He said, I served countless years back and forth to Afghanistan and back. If I'm not war weary, why are they war weary? What if they contribute right. to this issue? You know, and I'm like, that's so true. He's like, you're not war weary. You lost your brother in Iraq. 
and you continue to work with uh, servicemen and women each and every day. You're not war weary. You're out there demonstrating what it means to be a, a, a injured, a disabled uh, Marine, you know, making sure you're bringing light. Like if we're not war weary, then how are these people that have no connection, this 99%, why are you war weary? Like, I don't get it, you know? No, absolutely. Well, and and that I mean that's even one of the reasons that, like I told you earlier, I had to step away from social media and everything because everybody has an opinion. And 99% of the time, especially with what I was seeing, it's uneducated. They have no idea what's going on. They have no reason to really feel the way that they're feeling. They're just, they're repeating what they saw on TV or they're repeating what their friends have said. And so to your point about, you know, about a society that's being more weary, for what? Because there's a, there's a very small fraction of, uh, of people who have served in the military and an even smaller fraction of people who have gone to Afghanistan. And I can guarantee right now, any one of the men and women that serve with me in Afghanistan, we'd go right back if we could right now. We have been hurt by seeing all of these opinions, by seeing what's going on over there. And I have never seen a lack of patriotism the way that I have overall, again, in our society but a rise in patriotism in veterans and the active duty space. Um, I am so devastated by what happened to those, those, those 13 that we lost, but to see the amount of love and the outpouring of support that you know, those families are getting, it gave me a little bit of hope. Uh, we'll just put it that way. And it, and it kind of restored um, at least some of my faith in, in, in our society and where it stands right now. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It breaks my heart because there's so much cowardice and so many people who have um, lost their spine um, and people who have just been totally like lost their way in doing what's right. So, well, from someone who has never served in the military, I can say that I thank you for your service. Um, I thank you for being part of a community that has kept the enemy from our door for the last 20 years. And, and I think that that is, you know, trying to think about how I want to say this. I think that the ties that bind us as a military community are something that the average person will never understand. And absolutely. It's a blessing and it's also a curse um, because they won't ever understand it and they can't ever understand it. But, um, but we know that bond and especially in the Marine Corps, um, you know, I, I'm obviously very partial, but there is, there's something different about that Marine Corps brotherhood, sisterhood. And that community is, lives by Semper Fidelis every day. And so um, the idea that after losing 11 of their own, 11 Marines, a Navy corpsman and, um, and a soldier in the army, they got on that plane and um, weren't able to accomplish that mission of bringing everyone home that they had set out to do. Um, it's a slap in the face to, to what our military represents. And trust me, it was not those 22, 23, 24 year olds on the ground that made that decision, right? And so um, I hope that we as a country can push through the rhetoric 
because you don't have to look too far to actually see what's really going on, right? And, and if you just, if you watch the mainstream media and that's all you watch, then you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand. Um, but talk to a Marine, talk to a service member. That's what I was saying. You want to, you want to know what it's like to serve in the Marine Corps. And there's actually this viral video going around that one of the Marines posted. I don't know if you've seen, it's about eight minutes long and it's, and he basically, I don't know if he was wearing like a GoPro on his head, but it's the last two weeks of him in Afghanistan and it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's them sitting in, you know, smoking cigarettes and, you know, joking around with each other and folding chairs, riding bikes. It's showing the, the toilets and how they're overflowing with crap. But then it's also showing, you know, how they're having to set off smoke blasts to push the, the crowd back. It's showing babies crying. It's showing Afghans that are passed out from heat. And it's this perfect image of what the last two weeks was for, for these men and women. It's, it's, and, and, and I'm sure once you watch it, it's also a reflection of, of some of your time there spent on two deployments in Afghanistan. And those are the things that, that America needs to see. Those are the images. It's not always pretty, right? But, but that's what they need to understand is representative of what our service members represent to this country. If you could have anything, if, if you could think of anything that you would want our leadership and, and when I say leadership, it, you know, our, our, our government, um, I don't know if you want to call them leadership, but our government or the general <laughs> public, those that are not, uh, not connected. If there's anything you would want them to know, um, as a veteran of Afghanistan who gave her limbs to this country, who gave her career to this country, who had to start all over again because of the, the, the service to this country, what would you want that to be? Well, even, uh, even though sometimes it hurts to say it, I just want to say that um, the American people and, and the Afghan people were worth it. Um, and that's really it. I mean, you, you kind of touched base on it a minute ago. Um, we kept that from coming here for 20 years. And if people can't see anything beyond that, at least be grateful for the men and women who did have the courage to serve our, our country during that 20 year span. Because I really think that um, we're going to um, endure a lot of change and a lot of scary times um, moving forward. So like you said, my career, my injuries, um, the American people and the Afghan people were worth it. Well, thank you for that, Kirstie. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you read General Berger's, the comment of the Marine Corps, his letter to the Marines that he put out, probably, I mean, the days are all melding together at this point, but I think it was probably about 10 days ago, just over everything that was happening in Afghanistan. And one of the lines that I, I keep repeating is he says, um, does this hurt? Yes, it does. Was it worth it? Yes. And um, it was worth it. Um, 
I'm going to finish with the last question I ask everybody uh, who joins us as a guest of Resilient Life. And uh, I think this entire conversation represents that. But if you could sum it up, what does living a resilient life look like for you? Oh, man. Um, I mean, there's two sides of that, I guess. I mean, living a resilient life, it's one on one side, it's, it's my mantra. You know, it's the six inches between yours and what's behind your rib cage that dictate what you're capable of. Um, but really, again, you know, like, like you said, you know, this whole conversation has really <laughs> embodied all of it. But, you know, you keep your head and your heart in the right place. Uh, you really can overcome absolutely anything. Kiersey, thank you so much for joining us. Um, awesome conversation, one that I know so many people are going to appreciate. And um, uh, I'm just so honored that uh, I had the opportunity to, to join you and, um, and listen to everything that you have to say. And, and I wish you so much uh, fortune in, in the future. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep speaking out. Keep being a, a pillar of hope and light. Um, for the Marine Corps, for females, um, for everyone. Um, thank you so much. And um, thank you to everyone for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. Kirsty, thanks again. Thank you for having me.